Welcome to episode 24 of The Process, made for this. Thank you for being here with me today. Appreciate you for coming. Change on me if you knew the truth Knowing I ain't the same person that was introduced Thank the Lord cause I don't look like what I've been through Here's a letter to you I'm back again Jesus on that cross I had to rise again Time to get my blessings, time to get my blessings I had to live my life, I had to learn my lessons I had to keep that smile but deep inside I'm stressing Just trying to keep my spirits from that deep depression Welcome to episode 24 of The Process. I am Quavon Taylor. And I am Amante Martin. Uh, today we have Miss Tiffany Ford on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Tiffany. Thank you. So Tiffany, can you tell the listeners where you're from? Yes, so I am from Chicago, Illinois. I grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago. South side Chicago. Is that where the White Sox play? Yes. So, yeah, that's that's how Chicago is. It's like the south side, north side divide with the uh, White Sox and the Cubs. So, yeah, go Sox. Go Sox. What was it like growing up in uh, on the south side of Chicago? Well, so south suburbs of Chicago, oh, right? South suburbs. Yeah. Right. No, and I, and I specify because my whole family is from the south side of Chicago, but I grew up in the south suburbs. And so... It was interesting because I feel like I grew up like seeing almost like two different experiences. Um, so it was, I mean, it, it was, yeah, it was, it was interesting. I think is the best way to describe it. Um, at the point in time when I moved out to the South suburbs, we were like, I was one of the um, only black kids like in my school. So it was, um, difficult is the best way that I could put it. Like, so I definitely grew up experiencing like racism in my school system, like very early on. But for my parents, they were like, we want you to go to these South suburban schools. And that was really their focus for us living out there. So, yeah. So what major hurdle uh, or, or struggle did you have to overcome growing up in Chicago? I think you kind of touched on a little bit. Um, yeah. High school. It was, it was really so early on it was the racism in the school system like from teachers and from other my like my classmates like getting called the n-word in kindergarten like I had to switch preschools <laughs> like and, I, and it's weird because a lot of times you don't remember like things from super early in your like life but I still remember going to like or maybe like four or five different preschools and like literally constantly switching preschools because of racism. So like getting called, like I said, getting called the N word in one school, getting like hit in the back of the head 
uh, with a chair from a boy in one of my other schools, like, cause I wanted to play with him, like just stuff like that. And my mom was constantly having to move me to different schools because I just wasn't being treated right. Like, and the teachers wouldn't like tell my parents what happened and stuff like that. And so then I would go home and tell my parents what happened. Cause I talk a lot and I've always talked a lot. So I used to just spill all the information. My mom was like, what? Like, so I think that was definitely a difficulty. Um, you know, my teachers used to, they used to think that I was like slow because I didn't like listen in class or whatever, but really I was smarter than the other kids. And so they were trying to like put me in the special classes. And so again, my mom, like, and that's one thing, like my mom was like a rider, right? Cause otherwise I would have ended up kind of tracked into like the, the special classes and all of that. But um, yeah, I think that was like my major difficulty early on in my education. And then black folks started moving out to my school. And so then it was presented a different difficulty because I had got so used to being around white people all the time, like at school, you know, like I wasn't used to black people that weren't my family. Mm-hmm. So that presented another difficulty. And then yeah so it was it was an interesting time I think like race was a major issue in my life early on like I I knew what it was to be black very early on in my life just because of where I grew up how I grew up all that how do, how do you think you navigated uh during that time in your life because I think that's a pivotal time when people you know, discover their identity and form their identity. Um, like, how did you make it through that? How did you navigate through that experience? Because that could be quite difficult when people try to make you feel less than, but you know that you're smarter than the most, if not all, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it was, I don't know, it was weird because I feel like, honestly, that the, the way that I grew up and that experience honestly made me into like, it made me feel like a mole, like, which sounds super weird, but I always felt like I was kind of like in disguise or something. You know what I'm saying? Cause it was like, I don't know. I would be around the white folks and I would be like acting like I fit in with them, but I knew in my head, I kind of didn't. But then when the black folks moved out to my neighborhood, I'd be with them and I'd be kind of like acting like I fit in with them for real, but I kind of felt like maybe I didn't. So it was always just like a kind of strange identity thing. I think it wasn't honestly until like maybe my senior year of high school or maybe even college that I finally was like, okay, this is who I am for real. Um, Cause I think before that I was just trying to be who I thought I needed to be in the space that I was in at that time. Um, but yeah, so, so I don't know. I think our like identities are always kind of developing and changing like early on in life. But I think for me, like I actually really value that experience. Like, even though it was kind of hard to figure out like, who am I? What, where do I belong? Like, you know, whatever, like all those sort of like questions that everybody's trying to figure out early in their lives. But I think it was a really valuable experience because now I, I feel comfortable in any setting at this point in my life. I'm like, I genuinely don't care. Like drop me anywhere and I'm good because I feel like I was constantly in that sort of situation, like growing up. Hmm. So, so who did you, how did your uh, identity form when you got to, I guess, college, right? Or you say your senior year? Um, I, yeah, I think it was mostly once I got to college and I feel like I just like, I just 
was who I always wanted to be once I got to college. Like, I don't know if that even makes sense, but I think I stopped thinking about what I thought that I was supposed to be and just started being who I knew I was, if that makes sense. So it just, I don't know. I, I, I got pushed into uh, student activism and student leadership um, at the University of Miami. Like I didn't even mean to. Got, I got like voluntold for stuff. And then next thing you know, I'm like just doing it all, student leader on campus and stuff like that. So I don't know, it, it just, I think I just kind of finally stopped thinking about who I who I thought people expected me to be and just decided to be who I felt like I was. So Tiffany, uh, growing up, uh, you said you were, you were at, uh, at a predominantly white school. You, you, had, you probably were the only black kid. Um, how would you say your blackness was it ever challenged? How, how do you even know you like? How did you even know the difference between black and white? I mean, you was around so many white kids. How did you know you were different? Cause they called me a nigger. Like it was really that. Like it was that. Like they 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 didn't. They were terrible. Like they were not. I remember kindergarten. I would. I was, I've always been a perfectionist. I'm working on it, but I've always been a perfectionist. And in kindergarten, I was like trying to cut this piece of paper. And also, I have bad eyesight. That's that's background. So I was trying to cut this piece of paper. And this is before they knew that I had bad eyesight. And I literally cut my eyelid and was bleeding. And this is kindergarten. And my teacher, my kindergarten teacher, saw that I was bleeding. She let me stay in class all day. Didn't send me to the nurse anything. I'm literally bleeding from my eye all day and my mom worked full time so my mother didn't find out that I was bleeding until the end of the day like five six o'clock so she could come pick me up from school like they really were like not treating me right and and of course as a kid like you don't really understand but like I would have kids tell me they couldn't play with me because I was brown like and so I didn't I knew I was different I didn't understand the the complexity of race at that point in time like I didn't understand why the kids didn't like me why like my teachers weren't nice to me and stuff like that I didn't understand that but I knew I wasn't like them and yeah and I knew like I knew that I had a family that I looked like but I knew that the people I went to that were in my class didn't look like my family and that they didn't treat me nice. Like, I feel like that was kind of the extent of what I knew. But it wasn't until, I think now, like, that I'm older and I can look back on it, I can kind of, of course, tell a, like, understand how it all fits together. But at the time, I, yeah, I don't know. I just was, like, not understanding why they treated me that way. But I just knew that they were treating me differently. So being from Chicago, why did you choose the University of Miami? I got a postcard in the mail, like super random. You know how you take the, uh, the ACT and then schools start sending you stuff? Yeah. So I got a postcard in the mail. It had palm trees on it, okay? It looked beautiful. And I had never been to Miami and I was like, oh, this looks nice. I was like, I'm gonna apply. And so I did. And then I happened, I, I applied and I happened to be looking on the school website one day, like literally just going through the school website because I was just super thirsty to go to college. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited about everything. 
So I'm on the website and I see, um, I, I land on a page for the Ronald A. Hammond scholarship. And this is a full tuition scholarship. And, I'm, and, I, and I hadn't missed the deadline yet. And I was like, oh, I'm gonna apply to this. And I applied, um, I got offered an interview. So me and my mom, my dad, we drove down there so this is my first time in Southern Florida. We we driving down from Chicago. And I literally, when I stepped foot on that campus for my interview, I literally like fell in love. I was like, this is the most beautiful place. I was like, is this a resort? Like I just had never seen anything like that before. The palm trees and the like the flowers and the have y'all y'all been on UM campus, right? I haven't. Yeah, I have, I have been on that. It's, it's nice. It's beautiful. Right. So, you know, like, it, it was just, I was like, what? So, I just, I feel like after that, I don't want to say the rest was history because I still had to make a final decision between the University of Miami and Hampton University. I just knew I was going to Hampton. Before I saw the postcard for Miami, I just knew I was going to Hampton. I was obsessed with the school. Like, I actually had committed to Hampton. Like I had accepted a, a scholarship there and I had to send a letter to tell them like basically, no, sorry, I'm not coming. And I changed my mind and went to the University of Miami. And I think about that sometimes because I love HBCUs. And so there's a part of me that's like, man, I wish I would have had the opportunity to go to HBCU for undergrad. But honestly, the, the things, the way that I grew at the University of Miami and the opportunities that I had and the people that I met, like I honestly could not trade that for anything. So, so Tiffany, you know, how was the transition coming from the north to the bottom? Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was honestly, okay. It was it was so different for me. It was so 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 different for me. And I am super thankful for my friends that I made in Miami for dealing with me and my ignorance because I came from, so by the time I got to high school, my high school was like, maybe like, eh, I'm trying to think of like the numbers, maybe like 50% white, like 30% black. And like the rest was kind of like a mix of other um, races and ethnicities. And so that, so that's kind of what I had become used to. And as you all know, Miami is not like that at all. Miami is very like just everybody from everywhere. Like I had never experienced a person that I saw and thought was black. And then they start speaking to me in Spanish. Like I had never experienced anything like that. I had never experienced like people that I look at and I think that they're black and they are like Caribbean, you know what I mean? They're like speaking Patois or like Creole. Like I never, I had never experienced anything like that. So I was so ignorant when I got down there. Like it's just, when I look back on, I'm like, dang girl, like you were just really wilding, but I didn't know anything. Like, you know, and so I would be saying stuff that just wasn't, you know, like quite right and, and all of that. And so my first year, maybe even my first two years was a major learning experience for me. Just learning so much about different people, different cultures, different experiences um, and all that. So yeah, it was it was a culture shock, I think is the best way to put it. But again, I, I am so happy that I had that culture shock because I think it kind of reshaped my mind. So now I'm just kind of, I don't know. I'm, I was always open 
to like all like cultures and experiences and all of that but I just had never seen it before so I think that being in Miami and seeing so many different things at the same time nothing surprises me anymore I'm just like okay yeah like we live in a very diverse world got it cool so yeah at the the University of Miami what did you study and why I was a human and social development and economics double major and I minored in health sector management and policy. And I actually started off pre-med. I started off pre-med neuroscience major because I just knew I wanted to go to med school and be a doctor and like help people. Like that was my thing. I was like, I want to help people. Um, But you know, the science classes just weren't for me. I think that's the best way to put it. Um, I refused to study. <laughs> like I just was not interested in in my science classes, honestly. So I didn't want to study because I've just unfortunately always been, well, I say unfortunately, but also fortunately, because I think it has worked out that I'm just the kind of person that I refuse to do things that I don't want to do. Um, and so that was kind of how it was for me in my science classes. I was like, I don't like this. I don't want to study for it. So I would just go in and take the test. And, you know, it didn't always go so well. So I ultimately changed my major to human and social development, but I was still pre-med. But um, actually my, my, my freshman year, my grandmother passed. And the, this, the circumstances surrounding her death just really impacted me a lot at that point. And I was just like, I cannot be pre-med anymore. Like, just, I was so upset with how things went down that I just, I was like mad at the medical system. And I was like, I wanna do something else. Like, I wanna do something where I can impact the medical system. I was like, as a physician, I can't change the lives of a whole bunch of people. Like, I can just help one person at a time. Like, I'm like, what can I do where I can impact more people at once? And so that's what got me into uh, looking at like, community-based work and community-based organizing and like policy and things like that. So that was kind of how I made my shift from pre-med to more like public health and policy. So how do you, how do you think, you know, your upbringing in Chicago, um, you know, the incidents you, you, you talked about at your schools influenced the, the, what you wanted to study in your research? Yeah, I think it's, it, it impacted me so much. And I think, so even even thinking back to where we started with, um, with where I'm from, being from the South suburbs, but having pretty much all my family on the South side of Chicago, I saw how things were different in the way that I grew up and the things that I saw like every day versus like some of my cousins and stuff like that and the things the way that they grew up and the things that they saw every day. So so that was the first thing that I saw, right? And I saw how things were different because, like, I, we were the only ones in the South Suburbs. So that means every weekend, every holiday, every winter break, every spring break, I'm in the city, like, at my grandma's house. Like, that, you know what I mean? Like, that's where I was. Like, so I'm seeing the, this stark difference in my daily life versus the daily life that I have when I'm out in the city. And... I'm just like, this doesn't seem right. Like as a kid, I was like, this doesn't seem right. But like, I don't know how the world works. You know what I mean? But then it wasn't until I moved to Miami and I was like, oh, this is a thing. Like, this is how it goes. Like you go into cities and 
and cities just don't they don't invest in their own people like in their own communities like that's this is just a thing that that is a fact of urban settings period and so the I think that it was really helpful for me to go from Chicago to Miami because that was when my understanding of like how systems work really was like expanded. Um, because again, like, you know, when you, you grow up where you grow up, you know what you know, but it's not until you get to go and see something else that you can kind of start to make like, um, like connections, you know what I mean? And like, you start to be like, oh, this is like that and, and, and everything like that. So so I think my um, my focus on inequality started with that. It started with seeing things that I that I didn't think were fair in Chicago, and then going to Miami and seeing some of those same things in Miami and being like, okay, so this is a this is a phenomenon that exists like beyond my family on the south side of Chicago. Um, so for me, it started with like kind of like health inequities and like diabetes right heart disease high cholesterol like seeing those sort of things and then seeing that in like black and brown communities in Miami as well and then seeing like torn up streets and like you know what I mean and and, and, and like driving down the street and seeing like uh all the liquor stores and abandoned buildings and stuff like that and you're just like oh this is everywhere um so I think that definitely started to to inform my thinking about inequality and so I I pretty much was always focused on inequality, even at undergrad. So what, uh, where did you go at the University of Miami? Uh, what did you study and why? I went back to Chicago and I went to the University of Illinois at Chicago to get a master's in public health. I Once I shifted from pre-med and I started to understand like what it meant to have a more large scale approach to tackling inequity I was like oh that's public health like you know what I mean that was kind of like my next step I was like because especially because at that time I really was more um health education and like community-based organization focused um I wasn't really quite so policy yet like I knew that I wanted to have a an impact like on a macro level but I think my brain wasn't thinking that I would actually work in policy yet. You're doing your PhD now. Um, and what are you studying and how, what have you learned along the way from, you know, University of Miami, uh, your master's program and now? Man, so so I'm, I'm doing my PhD now at the University of Maryland. Um, um, my focus is public policy, well, specifically social policy and my time in Chicago and what's wild is like, I did not want to go back to Chicago. Like, I felt like after I graduated from Miami, I was like, I'm not ready to go back yet. It just kind of felt like that was going back home and I wasn't ready to go back home yet. Like I kind of was trying to go out, see other things, but um, I started to have like some issues with my health, my senior year of college. So my dad was like, you need to be back home. Like you need to be close to home so we can be around you and all that. So I was like, oh, okay. So I ended up going back. And also it was like a financial thing as well. So I ended up going back to UIC and being in Chicago and, and looking back on it, that was one of the best decisions that I could have made because, because I was home. Like for the exact reason I didn't want to go back, that's what made it perfect. Because like I said, my focus is is inequality and I really grew to a point where I was like we can't have these conversations about inequity 
without talking to people who are directly impacted by inequity. And I think that because I was doing this work and in Chicago, a city that I knew very well, I was able to really call out people. So I was I was in my classes like, nope, nope, that's not real. Nope, uh-uh, that ain't gonna work. Like, probably, <laughs> honestly, like, <laughs> I really, I was real extra with it. But like, I think ultimately people appreciate it because they were like, okay, like we need to, we need to be real with like the conversations that we're having in this classroom. And like, I would not allow people to just kind of gloss over the real issues. I would not allow people to make untrue generalizations about the city like I just I wasn't going basically and I think it was so beneficial for me to know the city so well and be in those classes because I was able to hold us accountable in our own education Um, and so I think that was really useful so during my time in my master's program at UIC I got involved in a lot of like student organizing work Um, because during my master's program, that was also, um, a time when we're hearing increased, like, stories about Black men being killed by police. Um, so, well, first, first it was, it was Trayvon Martin, and this is when I was still at, in Florida. Like, I was still a, a UM student, and that really impacted me because I think, and I think it impacted a lot of people our age because I think it was one of the first times where we were like truly confronted with like this reality that I think like our elders already knew to be fact um but we saw it kind of like in our time so I remember still when the verdict came down for that I was actually in DC because it was um it was Delta Centennial I'm a Delta by the way hey um it was Delta Centennial and I was in DC for our conference and I remember the the verdict came down, um, not guilty. And I literally like I was out. I don't even know why I was out by myself, but I was out by myself. And my first instinct was to go to the White House because I was just so angry. Like I was so like, how could how could this happen? Like, have we not come farther than this as a country? Like I was I just had so many emotions. And so I just went to the White House. I was mad. I don't know what I thought I was going to do with the White House, honestly, but I was going anyway. And I go up to the White House and there are people out there like, and it's like this peaceful vigil. And so I just join in. People have like candles and they're like hugging and stuff. And I just join into that because I'm like, I don't know. Like, and, and that was really, I think, kind of my first, well, would I say that was one of my first, that was one of my first kind of steps into this sort of like activism advocacy space. Um, just because I, I was like, I, I have, I have so much, there's so much going on that I feel compelled to respond to. And so I think there was that. And then once I got to my master's program, um, there was, there was Mike Brown. There was, it was just, there were so many black men being killed by police. And so I, and we weren't talking about it in my classroom. And that just really blew me because I didn't understand how we could call ourselves public health professionals and not be talking about police violence, which is clearly a matter of public health. Like I I just like, my mind was, was, was truly blown. So I started interrupting classroom conversations to, to talk about the black men that were being gunned down by police. Like, I was like, no, we're not moving forward without it. So I helped to, to, to plan, you know, classroom walkouts and, and we, we held different events on campus and we helped to plan different protests and things like that because 
public health professionals need to be a part of this conversation. And I, I felt very adamant about that. So that was also something that really got me into kind of this like sort of, I guess, organizing sort of space. And I took that level of intensity and advocacy with me into my job that I that I got right after I graduated, um, which was working in policy in Chicago. And I did the same thing there, interrupting meetings, like, which sounds bad when you say it like that, but it was so necessary because if if there aren't people there to interrupt these these discussions and say, hey, what we're not talking about the matters that, that really matter. We're not talking about the issues that are really important and impact the health of the public. We're just, y'all are just out here trying to maintain the status quo. And I just feel like, my ancestors didn't die for me to get in these spaces and maintain the status quo. Like, that's just how I feel about it. Like, so that was kind of how I got into that space. And ultimately, I was like, I want to have the opportunity to research the, these like kind of issues of inequity more and, and be more knowledgeable about knowledgeable about them. And I want to be able to write more about it. I want to be able to speak more about it. And so that is something that really pushed me to to get my PhD and also the idea that like all these textbooks that we read and people be thinking it's like actual facts like all this is the stuff that people with PhDs did research on and wrote like we need to be creating knowledge and by we I mean like black folks like we need to be creating knowledge and and writing these textbooks and reframing the conversation and so I felt really really passionate about that and so I committed to to getting my PhD so I'm here now thank you yeah I, I can totally identify with the Trayvon Martin and, uh, and Alton Sterling and you know Mike Brown the list goes on uh, I remember being at Purdue University I think when Alton Sterling got killed and going into class feeling the same way like we're not having these conversations but you know I'm walking around with this on my shoulders it's, it's personal you know what I mean like if I feel some type of way and a colleague of mine and I uh, planned a couple of protests where we basically went out into the middle of the street and just interrupted traffic. You know what I mean? It, it got to that point, but I totally identify with that. But my question is, you know, you feel empowered as an individual, you know, you're in, in academia, um, you feel empowered to do your research, but what challenges do you face in terms of, you know, being a, a vocal activist um, in the academic space? Well, I mean, before I was in the academic space, when I was working and being a vocal activist, I mean, I would get like uninvited to meetings, like, you know, like I would get mysteriously left off emails. Like I would get, I was, there was a time when I was afraid I was going to get fired from my job. Like, so that was definitely a difficult time, but ultimately, ultimately I felt like I, I had things that I had to do. And I think that that even, even when I get when it gets difficult and it gets uncomfortable, I can feel my heart beating. Like I can feel it in my chest and I feel like I have to say something. And and like like I said before, like I I genuinely feel connected to my entire family. I feel connected to members of my family who have experienced, you know, different experiences of inequity because of the way that the system is structured. And and I feel like, and also like I said earlier about being a mole, like I feel like I was created to be in these spaces for a reason. Like I, I feel like I've 
I've learned all of these different things about people, about lived experience. I've, I've personally experienced different things as well. So just so that I could be in these spaces and interrupt and and bring the conversation back to what really matters and and be vocal and, and all of that. And so so that's why I do it, even when it's really scary. Like, I think and that's that's something I, t- I talk to people sometimes about, like, kind of. I call it institutional organizing because I think there's something different when you're a community organizer and the work that you're doing when you're literally like kind of going door to door and you're you're in different spaces with people. I think that that's a different experience from the work that I have been doing, which, like I said, I'm, I'm calling it institutional organizing. And I, I think that that fits where I'm like in these like meeting spaces and I'm like reading the agenda in advance trying to figure out at what point in the agenda am I going to kind of interrupt I'm looking at the I'm looking at the invite list for the meeting and I'm trying to figure out who is coming to this meeting that's going to be on the same page as me I'm meeting with the people that's coming to the meeting in advance of the meeting so that we can be on the same page so they know when I say this you say that like like it's it, it was getting real like and and I think it definitely is scary and I think you definitely have to be okay with sometimes standing alone and with sometimes being the person in the room that nobody likes <laughs> or at least it seems like nobody likes but usually what what most often happens is after the meeting people are like oh I really liked what you said and I'm like well why you ain't say that during the meeting but whatever <laughs> you know um, but yeah no so I think the overall answer is um it's scary and I used I think it's good to be in academia though that makes it better because, and that's another thing. I kind of feel like getting a PhD, I almost see it as like a protective thing. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Oh, so, yeah. So, so yeah. It's, get, get a little protection. I, I think it's interesting that in academia, in academia, just because a lot of people claim to do this type of work. And so, being in this position, you can kind of challenge that that notion of we're at we're we're actively doing X Y Z for this community and doing that. But you can actually hold their feet to the fire and say, okay, is this what we're actually doing? You know what I mean? Or yeah. you can kind of push the envelope a little bit. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's some really great academics, but I think that academia as an institution takes advantage of people. Period. Like, you know what I mean? Like. And so, I you can you can do your best to be a good academic, but I just I feel like it's still an institution, and and there are a lot of institutions that just don't have the best history when it comes to low income communities, communities of color, um, and so I think it's it's tough. What are some words you would give a person of color who have experienced racism to help them to help them through that process? My first response is one, you're not you're not tweaking. Like you're not crazy. Like it's real. Racism is real. Because I think that sometimes we can second guess ourselves so much. You know, the conversations about like microaggressions and all that. We're like, oh, like was it that big of a deal? Yes, like it was racism. And you experienced that and we live in a racist society. So I think that the first thing is you're not like you're not crazy. It happened. And I feel like the second thing is keep pushing despite, like despite all that, keep pushing. Like I, I, I got the opportunity to go to the African-American Museum um, 
for the first time when I, being here in DC. And I feel like that was the main lesson that I took away from it. Like going, I started at the bottom and worked my way all the way up. And the word that was in my head was just despite, like anything that has been thrown at us, like we still find a way to just make it and to, to first survive, but honestly to thrive as well. And I think it's so beautiful. So I think for me, in, in all of my experiences of racism, I just am always strengthened when I remind myself of everything that my parents went through, my grandparents went through, their their parents, their grandparents went through. And I'm just like, I was made for this. Like, I can do this. I am good and I will always be good. Who is Tiffany today? And what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh. Who is Tiffany today? I would say Tiffany today is an unapologetic Black woman who is walking on faith, knowing her purpose in her work, and like just not afraid to to push the envelope and to to do what is right in the name of equity, in the name of social justice. Like that's Tiffany today. And if I could give advice to young Tiffany, it's, girl, listen to yourself. Like, don't listen to what you, what other people are telling you. Don't listen to what you think other people want. Listen to what you want. Do what you want to do. And you will be okay. So what programs and initiatives do you think should be in place uh, for people, people to overcome and achieve? So this question is difficult for me to answer because I think as a someone who's in kind of social policy, I'm always thinking super specific to like certain uh, kind of like specific situations. But one thing that's been on my mind, actually, no, two things that have been on my mind a lot lately. The first one being um, fully funding our public school system. Um, systems, right, like nationally, and and really looking at how we fund our public schools and what are the implications of quality public school education on just our nation overall, right? I mean, on on, um, engagement in, in public processes like voting, right? Like, like all of that and just kind of knowing what's going on in our society. So I think that's something that's really been on my mind lately. And then another thing that's been on my mind is as we have conversations about legalizing marijuana, I've been thinking a lot about what does legalizing marijuana really look like in terms of the money that comes from this new legal marijuana sale, right? What's happening with that money? What's happening with the people who are currently in jails and prisons as a result of marijuana possession? Um, and how are we going to use this as an opportunity really to, to do something right in this country? And how are we going to use this as an opportunity to invest in communities that have been historically disinvested in, that have been historically over-policed um, and criminalized? So that's also something that has really been on my mind lately. Are there any lasting words you want to leave with the listeners? Yeah, the final thing that that I, I think about a lot and a lot of my friends, I like always try to push them and encourage them in this way, just to say that we all have the power and ability to change 
the situations that we're in, whether that's like our at work or in our classroom or whatever it is, if you hear a conversation that is is not right, you have the ability and and I would say you even you have the responsibility to say something about it, to push back against problematic ideas against people who are trying to hold other people down um you have a responsibility to say something and you have the ability to change the course of that conversation just by speaking up and you never know who might agree with you and who might be on your same page but maybe they're too afraid to say something first so don't ever be afraid to say something and 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 start to build community of like-minded folks who just want to see other people do well and who want to see other people have the opportunity to thrive. This concludes episode 24 of The Process. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and to like us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Thank you. Trust the process. Trust the process. I think the main thing for me was trying to decide on who am I and like what I want to be and how I want to be remembered. Like that was my thing. You know, oftentimes I think about like my legacy and like the mark that I want to leave, not only on the industry, but the effect that I want to leave on people. Being a whole human being, going through my obstacles, going through the things that I'm going through and not to only broadcast these things but for it to inspire change